Ha Welcome to the Movies Are Good podcast. I'm your host, Pie Man. We've got a chunky kind of filled episode of really just... It's all over the place, I'll be honest, okay? <laughs> I'm talking about Blue Beetle to kick us off. That's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, we've got the new indie film, The Dive. And we've got uh, Red, White and Royal Blue. The new really weird gay royal romance hallmark thing. I also watched Murder Size. Because <laughs> movies are bad. So stick around and find out whether or not that was just just porn. It was mm, still up for debate, honestly. <laughs> and, and here's the kicker, I watched this week, in a week, every single Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie ever. Which is, you know, it's really, it's, it's just, it was a time. <laughs> so, you're going to want to stick around for that one. But we're starting this week with Blue Beetle, because who doesn't love... Just another superhero movie. I'm sorry, but man, it's just another superhero origin story coming a little late in the game to it. And it features, even features the classic trope that's so tropey it's become a meme where the hero has to best somebody with his exact powers that's even stronger. That's the whole thing. And, <laughs> and look, here's the thing, okay? I liked it. You know, and I, I liked it far more than I expected to like it. I've heard a lot of people saying this is, like, really great. And I'm just, I'm not sure that's true. But considering that it's, in so many ways, just the basic superhero origin story film again, it it does a really good job setting itself apart enough to actually be interesting. At least to me. I thought so. Um, I was impressed by it, you know? It's, um, it really honours... Latino culture in a great way. Not that I know a great deal about it, <laughs> but it really feels like it's it's ingrained in that culture very well all throughout. It loves Blue Beetle. The film, the, the Blue Beetle film loves Blue Beetle and the history of the character and it honours that really well as well. And just the world of DC Comics. It feels like it manages to set itself in that world without having to be too, like, vastly name-droppy and things like that. Like, like Shazam. Shazam is a really, like, name-droppy movie that's, like, it's too excited to be in the world of DC. This feels like it manages to tread a line between being overly cheesy about it and being not at all feeling like it's in that world. It's It's got a good balance between the two things. Um, so I really like that. It could also be a Fast and Furious movie with how many mentions of family there are, but you know, is what it is. <laughs> so, Hamerius, probably pronouncing that wrong, I do acknowledge that I'm whiter than the bread that gives you cancer. Um, he, he, you know, he's just finished college, and he returns home to find out that his family is just screwed. Yeah, they're so poor, they're getting kicked out of their house, dad had a heart attack, and they didn't tell him any of that? Like, I don't know, you know, is, you know... <laughs> Uh, they they tell him that they wanted him to focus on finishing his studies, but for such a tight-knit family to leave him in the dark for months about his dad having had a heart attack seems just so stupid and over the top, but whatever. Um, so yeah, no, he's, he's purr, but he meets this rich lady, and thank God she's not white, otherwise people would be shitting on this. No, she's Brazilian or something, so it's fine, yeah. But um, anyway, she's a rich heiress, and then she gives him the secret inside her box. Nope. No, that sounds bad. Um, she, she gives him a burger box with a ancient scarab in it, and it chooses him. It's this this alien symbiote. I mean scarab that, um, and it talks to him and tries to kill things for him. Yeah, no. 
I was really trying here, but no matter how you phrase this part, it, it's just Venom, but less R-rated. Yeah. Better, though. <laughs> Let's make that clear. Uh, so we learned about the Scarab. Like, a little. He doesn't really talk to it much, but uh, yeah. And then he finds out more about the previous versions of Blue Beetle. There's a lot about Ted Cord and stuff, and how cookie he was, and his daughter is sad because her mom is dead, dead mom, dead mom, yes, yes. And uh, she wishes instead of money, she had family. <laughs> You know, everyone in Hollywood films makes it seem like it's impossible to, I don't know, like you're either really poor but have a nice family or you're super rich but your family sucks. Like, where's the happy meat? It, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's just it's just one of those things that keeps coming up that it irritates me because I feel like growing up I had a nice family, some money. I acknowledge I was very lucky to have all that, but... You know, like, I don't think it's impossible, and Hollywood makes it seem like it. Anyway, so, Susan Sarandon is here, she's rich and evil, and everybody is just on board with that, assumes it, and assumes she'll murder them all immediately, and they're right. White people are. <laughs> the whole thing, the whole film is really predictable and enjoyable throughout, anyway. Uh, it's got a few funny jokes, but it overdoes some of them a bit, like the grandma was a Mexican revolutionary thing. It, you know, brings that up in the third act, and it was really funny. But they just kept playing with it until it wasn't nearly as funny anymore. Um, it is overall more serious than I expected. I thought in a similar vein to things like Ant-Man, it would lean more towards comedy, because it does feel in several ways like DC's Ant-Man. But not so much. No, it leaned towards family melodrama in a lot of places, but it was well executed the whole way and opened new doors to keep it interesting enough for a sequel. I feel like it is... I was expecting it to be quite a subpar superhero movie that feels very much like a superhero movie. And instead, what I got was something that feels like the exact middle-of-the-road superhero movie. <laughs> like, it, 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 I, I feel like if you're looking at, like, all the greatest superhero movies and all the worst superhero movies in history, this will be directly in the middle. Like, exactly perfectly there. But it was good. It was good enough. And I'm giving Blue Beetle 7 out of 10. Next up is uh, is The Dive. And um, this this is a random one. It kind of came across my radar. I almost wasn't going to bother checking it out. And then I kind of just did. And I was, I was already at the cinema for a couple other films on uh, yesterday. And, uh, and I just kind of went, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um... And this was, I, I knew nothing about this going in, like, at all. I think I watched the trailer like 20 minutes before I was going into the film, because I decided I was going to. Um, it is small scale. It's one of those, hey, water is pretty scary indie adventure type films. It's like if 47 meters down or the shallows didn't have the shark. Or if 127 hours had a second person who was trying to get the first person out of the trap situation, but had a time limit so they couldn't just go get help. It's really, it, it had to convolute itself a little bit to set itself up the way it wanted. But once it was there, you were kind of like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And it was quite interesting. And uh, I'll give it that. But yeah, it's about two sisters and they've got a past, you know, dad, 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 dad is dad, yep. Uh, one of them is weird and has been distant for an unspecified amount of time, but still comes on this trip with her sister for a nice, enjoyable dive off the coast in some random, far out of the way place, far too far away to get any help of any kind. And guess what? Landslide! Yeah, <laughs> that felt pretty random. It's just a landslide happens. And uh, one of them gets trapped under some rocks, but conveniently isn't completely fucked up and uh, she's still awake and able to talk and whatnot. Does that really happen? Like getting trapped under rocks like that, but not getting like your legs totally crushed or anything? 
the whole thing's improbable, it doesn't matter. Um, but yes, so, the elder sister is trapped in every anxiety sufferer's nightmare. She's got to take instructions from her trapped sister to go back up, remember a bunch of things that she can't re-communicate once she's on the surface because their comms only work underwater, and do it all really quickly without panicking in time to save her sister's life. I got second-hand anxiety from this damn movie, and I'm, I don't even generally have, like, a lot of anxiety. It, um, the idea of it is fine as a film. And the execution is well done considering that I can't imagine an indie movie like this came with a lot of budget. The idea and situation are good, but the way the trapped sister keeps having random, confusing flashbacks to their childhood that are never really that well explained and goes a little crazy down there, that's not as much of a vibe. It makes it makes sense that all of this would happen in that situation, but it, yet it just didn't work for me as well, those scenes. It was just a bit of a... It felt like they went, oh god, is this going to stretch to 90 minutes? And just added in more of that to, to make it stretch to 90 minutes. That's kind of like, if you're trying to make a serious movie, like normally people people don't want it to go below 90 minutes, and this just slipped over it. And honestly, with the idea of it, it didn't need to. It could have been 80 minutes and probably come off a little bit better. I think that's just, no matter what the runtime's going to be, don't bother padding it, in my opinion. But anyway, so, yes sister's got to go back up and she's got all these really small scale problems <laughs> like it feels so small scale but then when you think about it when you're so constricted on time like she can't get the boot open of the car and, and there's there's something she needs in there like a tire iron or something um and, and you're just kind of like oh it feels silly when she first gets into that situation and she can't get in you're like get, just get into the boot and then you kind of go huh <laughs> watching what she's doing and thinking about, like, what would you do in that situation? She doesn't have the car keys. She she tries, like, knifing through the seats in the back to get it to it, and there's this other, like, wall that she can't break through there, and then tries to, like, jimmy something into the key slot so that she can open it and breaks, and yeah. What would you do? I, it's, it's an interesting situation, and it really, it does make you think about, oh, gosh, how would I be in this sort of uh, in this sort of really high pressure situation? It's very interesting. It, I, I find it fascinating, um, and it did feel good on the tension. It kind of kept it up the whole time. It. Um, I'm glad that it wasn't any longer, even though I feel like it kind of padded the runtime a little bit. It, it didn't. It didn't do it loads. You know, I'll say that for it. It could have dragged it on a lot longer, and it would have been so unnecessary for what the plot was. Um, and that, that's kind of it, you know, she goes back up, she comes back down a couple different times to bring her new air tanks, and then the other air tanks are trapped under part of the landslide, and she can't get to them, and she drops one of them, and it's, and it's just all these tiny, after that initial landslide, which traps her, all these just little things go wrong, and you're just kind of at the point of going like, god damn it, without feeling like it's unreasonable in, in how much it, the film makes go wrong so that it can prolong itself, you know what I mean? Um... So it's fair enough, and it worked well, and yeah, I have to say, it's probably it's probably 99% what I expected. You know, I watched the trailer just before going in, and <laughs> there, there was very little to surprise me about it after that. The point of the film is not to shock you or anything, it's to be a pretty solid thriller, and it did that. And yeah, for people who enjoy kind of these kind of tight, tense thrillers aren't too, like, claustrophobic or, or anxiety-filled, <laughs> um, I would recommend checking it out. It's decent. It's not 
phenomenal by any means. It's I'm probably not even going to remember in a year's time that I watched this, honestly. But take from that what you will. It was a decent enough quick watch in the cinema. Personally, if I wasn't there to review it, I probably wouldn't have bothered going to see it from what I saw. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's good, though. It's got a little bit of ingenuity, extremely reminiscent about the past of the minimal number of characters. There's a lot of sitting around. It's kind of, yeah, it's exactly what you expect from one of these indie thriller type things. <laughs> it's not original, it's not great, but it was enjoyable enough for a quick 90 minute and done indie sort. And I'm giving the dive 6 out of 10. And lastly of the new entries this week, <laughs> I, uh, I got to watch one of the weirdest meme movies of the year. It's called Red, White, and Royal Blue. And it is... Very gay. Extremely gay. <laughs> it's the gays taking back the Hallmark-style movie and making it much better, to be fair, than any Hallmark movie. And also sexier. Like, it's rated low, as in, like, certificate. Like, it's like a PG or something. And yet, some of those sex scenes in the first half are frickin' steamy, okay? Like, the equivalent hetero sex scene to any of those belongs in a 15 or an R-rated movie or whatever. It, it felt a bit weird, and it kind of toned itself down again in the second half, but yeah. I was watching it on a train, because the premise makes it sound like a safe, fun, sanitized romance movie. And it's not! <laughs> um, so, yeah, about that whole premise thing. Uh, there's this English prince of the very sanitized royal family, hates the son of the American president, who is a woman... Try and spot the unrealistic part as I continue here. Um, the line between hate and love kind of becomes blurred, and they fall for each other because the president's son is bisexual, having previously been with an American journalist, but his bisexual status is still secret. No, really, just interrupt me whenever you hear the unrealistic part. <laughs> so, they begin a relationship in secret, having strangely passionate sex scenes that hit real hard, and it's dangerous because Alex, the president's son, is in the middle of leading his mother's re-election campaign charge in Texas, believing that by targeting young people, Democrats can win Texas. And then Alex's family just accepts their relationship and doesn't stress about how the American public will view it. <laughs> has has the unrealistic part happened yet? I can't tell. This all just feels so real and true to life. <laughs> and then they get outed to the public with all their steamy messages and the royal family accepts the prince is gay while Alex's mother manages to get re-elected and win Texas. A woman wins an American presidential campaign shortly after her son's deeply homosexually erotic private messages with another man were leaked. And the British royal family allowed one of their own to come out homosexual. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the whole film. And I'm not sure whether the, there was an unrealistic part in there. But <laughs> maybe maybe you guys listening caught it somewhere, yeah. Uh, look, it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It, it feels like something we've seen a million times before. It's not really, though. And even if it is... We've not seen it done gay. <laughs> it hasn't been gay before. <laughs> so you kind of... Um, it's 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 nice. I don't know. It was it was a nice movie. You know, that's why I could kind of compare it to the Hallmark style, even though it had some weird steamy scenes, and it was definitely better written and better acted and actually had actors you'd recognize, so it's not really a Hallmark movie at all. But it was just a nice vibe pretty much the whole way through. It just... 
That was the kind of, like, sanitization it felt. Even when there was conflict, it didn't really feel, I don't know, despite it being, you know, oh, God, the royal family can't have a gay person in it, and oh, no, the prison, will the prison win re-election? There was all this going on. It managed to make the whole thing feel low stakes in just a friendly way. It was just a friendly movie. That's the best way to describe it, okay? It's not a great movie. Definitely not. It is weird and wild. Um, it's, it's silly, but it's, yeah, it's just nice and friendly. It's the perfect example of, like, a kind of low-stakes streaming movie. It was an adaption of a book, apparently, and it had, you know, actors you'd recognize in it. So, I don't know if, if given what they were working with, it really deserved much of, of that, but it had it, and it was just, yeah. There's no other way to describe it, honestly. It, it, it is a friendly movie. Um, it's enjoyable, it's wonderfully gay, and it tackles kind of very lightly. It doesn't bother getting into the deep, like, you know, it would have admitted that maybe the American public and, you know, the British royal family would not be okay with <laughs> with all this um, if, it, if it wanted to really tackle these issues in a deeper way. So it didn't. It just wanted to be a fun, funny cookie, weird, romantic film. And it achieved that perfectly, I think. To, to the highest level that one of these sorts of, of Hallmark-esque, very friendly, low-stakes movies can be. So, I'm giving Red, White, and Royal Blue 5 out of 10. That's the height. That's the height for a Hallmark movie, I think. It's probably slightly higher than the real height for a Hallmark movie, yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. This movie is... Terrible! Movies are bad, and people constantly make bad movies, and I always try to give these movies a chance, and normally, especially the last few weeks, I've been burned by some unbelievably bad movies. You know, I want something that's kind of, the sweet spot for this segment is finding a movie that's, it's so funny, it's, it's quite enjoyably funny because it's so bad. That's, that's the right range, and I think the last, like, three or four in a row, I got hit with bad stuff. What have I been doing recently with this one? Let me let me double check. Yeah, last week was Ouija Shark. That was almost funny how bad it was, but it was mostly just horrific. Uh, before that was The Shark Exorcist, which was way, way not as fun as it sounds. And before that it was Tsunambi, The Wrath Cometh. Yeah. Night of the Were Rooster was like four weeks ago, and that was the last one that I actually kind of enjoyed. How silly it was, but even that... Just a little bit rough. And normally it is. You don't actually hit the sweet spot often. This week, I found a relatively new film. It only came out this year. It's called Murder Size. And I've never... <laughs> I've genuinely never been less sure going into a film or anything whether or not it's porn. <laughs> because most of the opening credits take place during a shower scene where this woman with just... Big honking silicones gets murdered. And at this point, I paused, you know, about five minutes in and tried to check online to make sure that this wasn't porn. And my conclusion is that it's up for debate. <laughs> I couldn't really tell you one way or the other, okay? It's a slasher movie making fun of the aerobic workout video craze from the 80s. And in doing so, it has a lot of scenes where scantily clad women bend over and the camera zooms in on their asses and such. Now, I'm not a prude. I'm not saying that it's basically porn because of that. Although, I can't tell whether the filmmakers are perverts 
or whether they're making fun of how people back in those days making those videos were perverts. I'm guessing, if I had to guess, I'd say both. But, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's just... It's just a whole thing. But then there are, don't get me wrong, loads of other scenes where there's, like, actual nudity. Yeah. Some of the actors, some of the some of the women starring it, are actually porn stars. And there's no... Yeah. You never actually see penetration, so no, it's not porn, okay? But... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing matters before the butt. No, um, uh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff. We'll we'll talk about it a little bit. You know, the general budget of the film feels like pretty minimal, but the quality of most things, you know, is better than the lowest form of films that I've been checking out recently. It does feel like it has around the budget of like a porn movie. Actually, yeah, God, well, wow. uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. By the way, the people who made this, I found out, also made Slash Lorette Party. Slash Lorette Party? Yeah. So I'm going to have to check that out at some stage. Uh, I don't want to after watching this, but I ha it's a film called Slash Lorette Party. I have to. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I think the glaring problems, they weren't so much in, like, you couldn't hear the actors, which the sound quality has been bad on some of the ones I've checked out recently, or the video quality really drops at time. Nothing like that. Those things are fine. The actual problems are in... Like, when, when there's a phone call, it just... You know, they don't do anything to make, like, the sound quality sound like it's on a phone or anything like that, you know, or, or like they're in a different room. And, and, uh, and little things, little bits, you know, the, the quality of graphics when during the murders are pretty awful, really. And, uh, oh, and the acting, yeah, all the acting is just horrific. It is, it is so bad. It is... It is pornographic in nature. Yeah, no, the acting is, is about on the level of, yeah, porn. Or any of the bad films I've been watching recently. That's the one area where it was undoubtedly about as bad as the films I've been watching recently. The acting is woof. <laughs> so anyway, there's a lot of time spent where these girls are just they just kind of bitch at each other uh, for like for like a weirdly long time. That's the start of the movie. Um, and then and then one of them watches they they watch a movie that one of them starred in where she makes fart noises down a phone. And I'm, I'm not sure how to react to that, or, or any of the film, really, but yeah. Um, it manages, it kind of manages, while having generally higher quality than most of these B-movies I've watched recently, to kind of be worse than at least some of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting. There's just some incredible lines as well throughout this, like, <clears throat> Candy wants to party with Chuck... And I want to show you my party hats. Or, or this one, um, horror movies make me horny. Or, or, I would never put my boobs away. <sighs> never mind, like, movies. Porn deserves better lines than this. By the way, all of those lines came from one scene. <laughs> so, take from that what you will. Um, there is an argument that goes on for several minutes about whether this weird bearded guy is going to touch the large fake boobs of this lady. It just ends with her fake crying and yelling, look at my tits, and like, yeah. Um, 
So eventually, and it feels like it takes forever, but the main girl, who's like this good girl type, she snaps and starts murdering the other girls, taking drugs, and then murdering really anybody she can get her hands on, all in the name of Reagan's America. But then, for a fun twist, the local serial killers show up and everything goes to shit. Yeah. You know, I'll say this for this movie. It is, it's not predictable. It might be porn. Even the 60-year-old lady gets her tickle bitties out. It's a royal mess, you know? <laughs> we already talked about one royal mess a minute ago. Now we're on this. This episode is weird. Um, the main girl, so the murderer, she hides in a closet for most of the third act while these two other killers dressed as cops play around in the most creepy ways imaginable with the other girls and murder some of them. Um, and then, yeah, the murder girl comes out and chainsaws the killers and... Everyone loves her for saving them, and she joins the crime family that owns the place. So overall, the whole thing, it's kind of, it's creepy. <laughs> it's creepy to watch. It's relatively funny at times. Mostly it's just a disaster piece. Um, it definitely isn't on, like, the very worst level of these kind of B-movies, because it, it has some moments that are genuinely funny, some moments that are trying to be funny and really aren't. And some stuff that's just kind of creepy. So I'm giving Murder Size 2 out of 10. Yeah. And by the way, feel free to suggest more piece of crap movies for Movies Are Bad, folks. Because I'm still waiting for Meth Gator and Sloth-er House to be released. Yeah, to be able to find them to watch somewhere. So I'm just kind of finding weird shit in random places each week right now for this segment. And sometimes enjoying it? Not really. <laughs> it's ranking time <laughs> so if there's one award that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film franchise can win it's the award for wildest variation in budget between movies. You go all the way from the nightmare-inducing Secret of the Ooze to the also nightmare-inducing, but in a different way, Michael Bay movies, all the way up to the more recent entries, including the crossover with Batman and, of course, Mutant Mayhem. I went in thinking, there's been a few, right? There's been a few, but I, I could probably rank all of them. And then because of my OCD, I just couldn't let it go. And I had, to, I had to watch them all. Everything, you know? Even things that weren't theatrically released. One that's just really a TV special instead of a movie. And it turns out there are ten. <laughs> Mutant Mayhem's release means that there are ten movies in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. So I just said, Kyabunga, dude, and watched them all. And we're going to rank them from worst to best now. <laughs> that's going to happen. Ten. So... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, or the one where they time-traveled to feudal Japan, is up first. It's it's first up and it's worst up. It's, um, in a word, not fetch. <laughs> this, this brought the first live-action franchise to a screeching halt, because it was just so awful that... No. <laughs> you know what? Actually, it's just exactly what you think it is when you hear time travel to feudal Japan. <laughs> okay, it's precisely as bad as the 90s puppet turtles whose costumes 
just got cheaper looking with each movie, they tried they, they travel to feudal Japan, yeah. These guys had just done Secret of the Ooze, which is kind of known in, you know, meme culture today as, like, the crazy, kind of pretty bad one. But they just straight away went, yeah, this'll fix the franchise. <laughs> and it's kind of leaning so far into trying to be a live-action cartoon that it becomes unbearable in editing, scripting, acting, and pretty much just in existing, yeah. I really didn't want to shit on any of these movies for being too childish or cartoony or out there with the logic, because it's turtles that eat pizza and do karate, like, but come on, <laughs> it's just, it's just so bad. They go back in time, they lose Michelangelo and mess around, and then basically go seven samurai mode, trying to, it's literally seven samurai, they're trying to help a small village fight a Japanese warlord, and a bunch of British guys with guns... How feudal is this, Japan? It doesn't matter. Um, this is the most forgettable TV movie-looking pile of garbage I've ever seen. It really doesn't feel in any way cinematic. Like, ever. Like, the, the Turtles movies that weren't cinematically released all do a better job of feeling like there's, I don't know, stakes? Or, or like, yeah, like it's a film. This, this felt like an elongated TV special that shouldn't exist. And I just... I just couldn't have imagined actually watching this on a cinema screen. But I'm giving Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, 2 out of 10. Nine. So here's the thing about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. It's, it's just a way too long title. <laughs> and also, a dumbass title, yeah. Um, it's also pretty much the same film as the first in this initial live-action series. Yeah, they did these three movies, and they're, they're just, again, fighting the Foot Clan. Again, fighting Shredder, because he's back after getting literally crushed to death in a garbage truck at the end of the first film. And they're hanging with April. And there's a teenage pizza boy instead of Casey Jones. Totally unexplained why or where he is. He just kind of shows up again in the third one. Um, oh, and April is a different actor. And so are most of the Turtles. And pretty much everybody, yeah. Anyway, this time Raphael will get into an argument with Leonardo, go off on his own, get fucked up, and screw his team over. So that's every film in the franchise. <laughs> yep, yep. So they get captured. There's this ooze that made the turtles what they are, and Shredder will use it to make himself white. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't really fly now. I, I, it's hard to believe it wasn't dodgy in 1991. Um, he was an Asian guy who turned into Kevin Nash, the wrestler, when he turned into Super Shredder at the end. Yeah. It's not okay. But anyway, um, he, he faces off with the turtles and they defeat him and that's the movie. Honestly, like, I was expecting worse from this one and maybe I'm being nice to it because I expected it to be so bad. There is nothing, as far as I'm concerned, that was egregiously terrible about this one. It was just pretty bad across the board, even cheesier and goofier and dumber than the first one in all the wrong ways. Because the first one was actually, you know, it kind of, it felt like it was hitting some sort of balance between cartoon and live-action format. Um, I did kind of expect this one to be worse. You hear some bad stuff about these 91s, but it's just the silly look of the puppets, because in the first one, they, you know, for being puppets, they didn't look bad. This one, they were cheaper. Third one, they were even cheaper, but we don't talk about the third one anymore. I'm done talking about that one. Um, oh, and they do also defeat Shredder's mutants by feeding them Donuts, forgot about that part. And then they had the yeah finale in the dance club with the Vanilla Ice song. Go go Ninja, yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty bad. Um, I, I, I just, I'm giving it a kind of pass because I expected even worse. I'm giving The Secret of the Ooze 3 out of 10. Eight. 
So I almost didn't include Turtles Forever, but I'm a real, you know, I'm a real completionist. I can't help myself. Once I find out, like, oh yeah, there's there's nine movies in the franchise. There's also this other one that's that is kind of a movie. It's a TV movie. I couldn't help myself, okay? And basically, this was not for me, because I, I watched all these, but it was my first time watching most of these films. I'm not a I'm not a Ninja Turtles guy. Not not for any reason, not you know, I just I didn't happen to really watch the shows a lot growing up. I was watching other things. And then once I was grown up, you know, <laughs> I, I never went back to properly watch any of the shows. So this this one was not for me, and it maybe doesn't deserve to be this far down the list, I don't know. But um, it crossed the 2003 TV series Turtles over with the 1987 series Turtles to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the franchise and to act as a finale to the 2003 series. It was doing a lot all at once, yeah. Um, so the wackier team from the 80s mixing with this more updated version was kind of fun. But yeah, I'll be honest, other people are going to like this more. I'm just not a Turtles guy. <laughs> just Nothing against the Turtles, I'm just not a Turtles guy. This was hardcore fan service that was never going to make me shriek and freak out with joy as much as it would like a, a real fan or a real turtler as I imagine they call themselves. Is that real? I hope that's real. Anyway, the, the film mostly paints the OG Turtle team as being kind of crap, especially at the ninja part, but it makes the 2003 team seem pretty crap at the teenage part. And it, it doesn't really fix that as it goes on or anything. It just doesn't matter. Um, overall, it's a fun idea, and as a TV special, it's an interesting concept, but it doesn't really make for much of a film. It's only just scraping over 70 minutes. They fight the 87 version of Shredder, who seeks out the weird alien 2003 Shredder and tries to team up with him unsuccessfully. And then the Purple Dragons get their hands on lovely 87 series mutagens and like it until they don't. The whole point is that there's turtles in lots of universes, and Shredder... 2003 Shredder, wants to take them all out. They travelled other universes, including the Turtle Prime universe, featuring the original comic characters, which was fun, uh, and then they beat him. And it really does feel like that's the speed at which all of it happens too. It moved quickly, you know? All of this is to say that the idea is nicer than the execution on this one. It's fine. Turtles fans will like it, but it really doesn't feel like much of a film, you know? So I'm giving Turtles Forever 4 out of 10. Seven. Ooh, Michael Bay. Ooh, Michael Bay. Number seven feels high to be putting this, honestly, but, you know, there's just some bad movies in this franchise. Anyway, this... It's just not Transformers, Michael Bay. You know, you just can't do this. This is a franchise that people actually care about. Oh, I went there. True, though. Who actually cares about Transformers? It doesn't matter. Um, Yeah, it just wasn't fair for Bay to come bumbling in, and I know he didn't actually direct this, but I'm going to blame him for it anyway, and double the number of live-action Turtles franchises, which just aren't great to watch back. Megan Fox's April just has far too big a role, seriously, and why is Megan Fox playing April alone? It doesn't matter. And the Turtles are, like, super-powered in addition to being ninjas, so they don't really need to be ninjas, because, you know, but anyway. Uh, and they save April, become best friends with April after kind of being dicks to her for a little while. All while maintaining an unhealthy level of slobbering over her for being Megan Fox. Yeah, god damn it. <laughs> if there's one thing Michael Bay loves doing more than putting Megan Fox in a movie, it's talking about how hot Megan Fox is while she's in the movie, yeah. Anyway, um, so then they, you know, decide to come above ground to save the city from the Foot Clan. 
I don't really like the tone overall of this one. I don't really like the voice actors. I mean, Johnny Knoxville being in it is one thing, but playing Leonardo, the leader? Uh, also, the extra backstory with April's dad being the scientist that made them, so she kind of raised them as Baby Turtle, it felt violently unnecessary. Yeah. So apart from the upgrade in visuals, which is a questionable way to put even that, perhaps, um, and a lot more explosions, there really wasn't much different from the main plot points between this and the first 90s live-action movie. It really felt like a remake of it in a lot of ways. Um, so it's hard to say that there's really anything which justifies the existence of this film. Yeah, The big twist in this one is that all the turtles except Raphael get captured in the second act. Usually he goes off on his own and gets fucked up. Just, but apart from that, it's just a very simple retelling for people who've never seen anything to do with the Ninja Turtles. You know, it's basic. It's done by people who don't feel like fans. Just a bit of a general bummer, like almost every Michael Bay Transformers movie. Though I will say, because I'm not a major fan, I honestly didn't find anything like egregiously terrible about it. Again, I think with this one, much like real turtlers, as I'm going to continue calling them, um, would probably like Turtles Forever more than I did. I think they'd like this one less than I did. Because I didn't feel the butchery of the original franchise as much in this as they probably would. But I'm giving Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2014 5 out of 10. Six. TMNT is next. It came out in 2007, and it's pretty bizarre for a lot of reasons. Now, I will say that I will always agree with the turtles staying animated. Half these films are live action, and it always feels weird. Good CGI or not. However, bafflingly, in 2007, which was 14 years after the live-action trilogy finished, they decided to set this in the same continuity? Kind of? And they did a Scooby-Doo and set it after the turtles are older and have split up, going for this weirdly serious tone. And the beginning is literally them going... Yeah, turtles, cool, whatever. But 3,000 years ago, there was this ancient warlord, and he opened a portal to another dimension and brought through horrors that murdered all his friends. Weird story, yeah. It's got a good voice cast. They literally did a Scooby-Doo and brought in Sarah Michelle Gellar as April. Uh, Chris Evans was there as Casey Jones, because, wow, he's done a lot of comic book characters, huh? Um, Lawrence Fishburne narrates it, and Patrick Stewart is the villain, who turns out not to be the villain. Like, there is good stuff about this, but I don't know, it just felt weird. It's just... The opposite of a good jumping on point for young people or anybody that hadn't watched a bunch of TMNT content prior to this, you know? Uh, we're talking a Turtles movie where they're not even all together for the first, like, third of the film. And nothing is really happening that's interesting in any way throughout all of that. Leonardo and Raph's relationship was done well. And that, that was by far the best thing about it. Their fight in the rain, awesome. But most of the film built to that, you know, this it kind of hits just over 80 minutes in length. And that fight happens at about 55 minutes. So they skip very quickly from that awesome fight to the kind of finale. And the whole, they focused a lot of runtime on like the villains and, and their whole thing. Because they were inventing villains. Well, I think they just invented those villains for this film. And they ended up feeling like an afterthought because Leonardo and Raph's fight was such a big, awesome thing. I don't know, it felt really weirdly put together if it had been, like, actually, like, yeah, like, 20, 25 minutes longer, then it might have worked out better, but it didn't. Um, most of the animation is a little bit bland, and, yeah, the story just, I don't know, there was, I felt like there was too many characters for such a short film, you know? Because the Foot Clan was there, and then this Patrick Stewart guy, and then his generals, and Casey was there, and everybody just kept switching sides. It's a mess, and I'm giving TMNT 5 out of 10. 5. I could feel that 
there's parts of my ranking here that are going to get shit on by real turtlers, and it's fair enough. But fifth is the first film. It's the 1990 live-action film, okay? I know, I'm putting Out of the Shadows above it, and they're going to shit on me for it, but, you know, okay, hear me out. They just, they, okay, they took the, you know, funky turtles, the 80s really silly turtles we were talking about earlier, they put them in a real dirty-looking run-down New York City, which is probably more accurate than the view of New York City than most movies give us, uh, and they had the goofiest-looking puppets I'd ever seen as the turtles in Splinter, until, of course, I watched the sequels to this one, <laughs> where they were far worse. Um... And to be fair, like, yeah, how else could you have made it in 1990 without a massive budget? It's fair enough. And they just do the right thing for a basic TMNT movie in this one, you know? It was fine doing it then, because it was the first time they'd done it as a movie. They introduced April and Casey. They had the Turtles help them out and become friends with them, as she is uncovering more about the Foot Clan, which leads to, da doy Big Shredder. There's a lot of uh, action scenes which are... Little weird to watch back today. They're aged. Um, and a lot of goofy jokes, which were fine. There were a few pretty good ones in there. They make it very clear that Raphael's on hothead and Leonardo's in charge. That's about it. Neither of the others really has characters. They just have pizza. Um, but yeah, they took all the recognizable elements. They executed them well. So is there really a complaint to be made? Not so much. The whole thing looks pretty darn cheap and goofy now, but I'll give them credit for not really doing anything terrible or going far wrong here. So, you know, I feel reasonably forgiving about this one. I could watch it back. It was fun, even if the film felt somehow even less mature than the Turtles, you know? <laughs> but I'm giving Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990 five, uh, 6 out of 10. 4. At number 4, I'm... I... Yeah, it feels wrong to put it this high up, honestly, but Out of the Shadows, hear me out. Or the time when Michael Bay really didn't know how to quit. That's, that's saying something. Um, It holds the distinction of at least being better than the 2014 one. If only because it, it wasn't the overly simplified story, I feel like if they just ignored the origin part, which I know would have made it a more difficult jumping on point, then the 2014 one would have been more like this, and the whole franchise might have worked out a little bit better, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it did... It, that, that one just felt like the overly simplified story that I feel like I've watched a million times this week. Um, this one wasn't, you know? And they a lot of familiar characters were introduced in this one. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like with this one, at least they just kind of went, fuck it. And threw everything they had. You know, they added Casey Jones, Baxter Stockman, Krang, Bebop, Rocksteady. They went hard and only had to recast Shredder and Leonardo, which... It's a minimal number of recastings for one of these, honestly. And give Leonardo a better voice, because it wasn't Johnny Knoxville anymore, so I was happy enough. And within ten minutes, they introduced a big, tricked-out garbage truck for the turtles to ride around in. That alone spoke volumes about how much cartoonier this one would feel. To its betterment, for sure, in my opinion. Uh, the whole film is just New York action scene. And another one. And another one. Weird, random, jumping out of planes over Brazilian reinforced scene. And then just back to New York. <laughs> another, another New York action scene. And, and to be fair, that Brazilian one was one of the better scenes. The, the film does feel nicely cartoon adjacent. You know? I looked it up and I was unsurprised when I realized that Michael Bay didn't actually direct. Because um, it just felt like there was more... There, there were more people working on this one that were fans of the franchise or something, you know? Uh, that really helped it for me. And three things, by the way, I, I kind of, at this point, it really hit me <laughs> in my watch through them all. 
Three things are certain in a Ninja Turtles movie. One, Shredder happens. Two, something gets muted. Three, Leonardo and Raphael will fight. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen ten films. And they fought in... Uh, not really, actually, in Mutant Mayhem. Huh. They kind of finally dropped it a bit in this new one. But yeah, apart from that, I think they fought in every single one of those films. And it's always the same fight. And I'm getting pretty fed up with it. And I've never even watched most of the shows. Anyway, they fight Shredder and Krang above New York to stop them from making a Death Star. Technodrome! Te- Technodrome! I said Technodrome. Nobody mentioned it. Yeah, it's a Death Star. It really is. <laughs> Everyone betrays each other throughout, and uh, that's really the only reason the Turtles win. Like, Shredder betrays Baxter. Krang betrays Shredder. Yeah. Emphasizing family in this one as well, almost as much as in Fast and Furious, but that's fine. Um, it's to be expected in modern child-friendly blockbusters, I think. Uh, so I'm giving Out of the Shadows 6 out of 10. Three. Batman versus the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is my chance, and it's a rare one, to absolutely acknowledge the greatness of DC in terms of animated direct-to-DVD movies. It's awesome. Not as in, like, true cinematic greatness, but in the Scooby-Doo VHS tape you wore out as a kid kind of greatness. You know? Just beloved for being awesome and cool. Sometimes dark. This one, not so dark, but still slightly darker than you'd expect for the Ninja Turtles, I think, yeah. Um, And honestly, until recently, that's kind of where I believed was the right place for Turtles. Until I saw Mutant Mayhem, which we'll get to, I kind of thought, like, yeah, these animated direct-to-video type ones, you can just have more fun with that format, and maybe that's a good place to just kick out a bunch of Ninja Turtles movies, like they've done with Scooby-Doo for decades and it's just kept working for them um so yeah the, this one felt similar to the idea of turtles forever for me except instead of just doubling every turtles character they were adding batman robin and batgirl to the turtles and bringing in shredder joker rachel ghoul and a bunch of batman villains and then as turtle movies are just so fascinated in doing everybody gets turned into insane mutants yeah and it was good it doesn't sound like it should be that good, but it was actually pretty fun. It was just well-executed and enjoyable film. Their styles mixed in some really amusing ways. It wouldn't have worked nearly as well if it was just Batman. <laughs> but ba- Robin and Batgirl being there as well, huge help. <laughs> Especially Robin. He kind of gelled with the turtles. Batman was kind of like, Ugh. and Batgirl was just kind of like, eh. And it was really fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, Bring in the League of Assassins was... The simple but correct decision for such a crossover. Um, And yeah, there felt like there was an actual level of stakes to the film. It felt a little bit more serious at times than... It just... It's like... It's like when one of those memes where someone's like, oh yeah, just make a simple soundtrack for this, and then someone's absolutely shredding. You know, it's something like that. It was just meant to be a simple crossover movie that would get people going, ooh, I'll watch that because it's a simple crossover movie. And yet, they kind of went hard. (laughs) They kind of hit hard. (laughs) While doing a lot of the major plot points you expect, you know, oh, let's mutate the Joker into a freaky mutant thing. Oh, let's have mutagens break out in Arkham Asylum. Let's have the Ninja Turtles fight the League of Assassins. Like, simple concepts, but executed just really well. That was what this one was all about. Um, And I think, yeah, having that level that feels like there's a little bit of threat or seriousness to it, that makes one of these, like, it, it feels more like a film and less like, Lizzie McGuire meeting Kim Possible. That would have been awesome, actually, but never mind. Um, (laughs) There is a big difference between an elongated TV episode and a movie, and I think it's perfect looking at, like, Turtles Forever 
that was an elongated TV episode. This is a movie. So, it's somehow third place on my all-time favourite list of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. And I'm giving Batman vs. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 7 out of 10. Two. Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie, is second place. And um, if you know nothing about the rise of the TMNT show, you'd probably be stunned at how dark the damn opening is here. Yeah, it's in uh, 2044. Casey Jones, a pupil of the great ninja master Leonardo, is helping his master and magic warrior, magic warrior Donatello, try to stop the Krang invasion. And failing, both turtles die, but manage to send Casey back to present-day Earth. Because this series has magic weapons for the turtles, interdimensional travel, time-shifting, whatever nonsense you can think of. Full-on fantasy mode. Yeah. And I will say... It's pretty much just Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Days of Future Past. <laughs> but that wasn't a bad idea, <laughs> you know. Um, ben Schwartz is here playing Leonardo. He's great and I love him, but I don't get why they completely shifted the roles of the different turtles. Why is why is Raph, like, the leader now and the one who advocates working as a team and Leo is kind of a hothead prick? When did that happen? I don't know. I don't know when, I don't know why. I've not seen the series as this is following up on, but yeah. I was able to get on board with the voice cast. The animation, a little less so, but it was okay. The plot was intriguing from the start. This April is quite different, but I kind of loved it. She's got a lot more character than most versions of the character. And it's just so much better than Megan Fox. <laughs> Which was what I watched right before this, so I was just kind of like, ah, yeah. She felt like a very modernized and yet very cartoony character. I liked it. Um, yeah, this weird blending of what were, like, super cartoony turtles and pretty high-stakes, dangerous plot with a lot of seriousness and danger to it. It was a weird mix. I did like it, though. I didn't really like that Raphael got hawk-eyed and spent most of the movie brainwashed by the Krang, but the whole thing made it seem very apocalyptic, which is what they were going for, I guess, you know? Um, I enjoyed it, despite not knowing the show. It was one out of all these movies that made me actually want to go watch some of the TV shows in their entirety. And I'm giving Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the movie. 7 out of 10. One. And now number one. It's so rare that we get to finish one of these rankings with the new thing. Because in a franchise this long reaching, how often does it happen that a completely new take on it is actually the best one ever? <laughs> Probably a little more often than you'd think. With, with a lot of these franchises, I... Ones like this, I feel like they've been just recently starting to put them in the hands of real fans and giving them more creative direction, you know? And I feel like most people that worked on Mutant Mayhem probably grew up watching the Ninja Turtles. That that helps. It, you know, obviously it does. Um, and they blended everything. They really did, from the overly cartoonish early days in the 80s to... The, I mean, they even had the... I noticed the, um, the belt buckles <laughs> from the 80s with the initials on them. Um, and, and they had everything about that while also having the kind of teenage humor and, you know, actually making them feel like teenagers for once. Yeah. Okay. I said it. I said it. <laughs> I didn't think about it too much until we got here, but my goodness, did it feel so nice. Such a, a shift, such a great shift for the franchise to actually take these four teenage characters, have younger people playing them for once, and make them feel like teenagers. Because I'm 
26 now, but, but you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember what it's like to be a teenager. And let me tell you, immaturity and being a teenager are not the same thing. Yes, teenagers can be immature, but there's just other aspects to that. And this is the first film out of 10 that had any of the other aspects besides just being immature idiots for the characters. And I loved it so much. It was wonderful. It really was. Um... So yeah, they gave them hormones, made them feel really well modernized. That was a huge part of what made this a great film. So Mutant Mayhem, it's about the turtles who don't save people and have never been in an actual fight, which is also a nice, you know, give them an actual origin. Um, because every other time that they've gone out on their first adventure in a film, they've just immediately been awesome. But if you've never been in a real fight, like, you know, training is different. And this is, again, the first film to acknowledge that, which felt weird. It was better at making them teenagers. It talked more about them being mutants and made them feel this affinity with other mutants for once. It was, you know, so much better at making them feel like ninjas in training. You know, it didn't actually, it wasn't the best film for making them into ninjas. It was the best film, though, for making them feel like they were young and still learning how to be heroes. Which was great. Which is all just so great. Um, and then, yeah, they, they come out, they meet April. Leo is the one that actually falls forward this time. And they decide to try and stop the mutant-related crime spree sweeping New York. The film is funny. Really funny. The milking scene had me in stitches. Like, oh, that was great. The action is okay. Not great. And the characters are all amazing. Real. Modern. So many people have been comparing this to films like Nimona and Spider-Verse that have come out this year. And I agree, an artistic flair... Though I preferred the art style in either of them to this, honestly. And narratively as well. They're very similar. Um, there's a maturity to the story that makes it feel fit for all ages. Which really can't be said for all of the movies in this franchise. Um, and the characters too. They're reminiscent in kind of style and flair of films like Spider-Verse. If there's a complaint to be had from me, it's my classic pet peeve. It is. An animated movie that just throws a kaiju into the third act out of nowhere for no reason. Yeah. You, you could showcase the turtles really finishing their learning to fight in real combat subplot better if you actually made them beat him in a fight. Instead, it's just grab the thing, do this, throw the thing into this hole he's got, and he'll evaporate or whatever. How can we beat him? He's so large. It, yeah. it just frustrates me because, yeah, I feel like it was so good at, being, at making them teenagers and mutants and turtles. The ninja part... It, it tackled it well in some ways, but it, it, it was annoying. That was annoying. Um, it just feels like it weakened a villain who'd been a pretty fly guy up to that point. <laughs> God, you ever just make a joke, like you come up with a joke and you know you have to say it, even though in your mind you're like, no, don't do it. Yeah, they missed out though. Pretty fly guy because he's a fly. I'm genius. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, it's a great ride overall. You know, and... I think, you know, obviously in the post-credits it sets them up with a very obvious direction to go in from here, you know, duh. But um, it deserves the chance to explore that in these versions of the characters more. Because the characters I've gained a lot of appreciation for over this brutal ride I've taken speedrunning the whole franchise. And I think this, for me, this was Spider-Man Homecoming. It, it took the characters back to their roots a little bit. It produced just a good film... And the weakness was slightly more in the villain than anything else, you know. And I prefer both Far From Home and No Way Home to Homecoming. So I'm hoping, and I'm kind of expecting even, that when, not if, I think when this gets a sequel, it's going to up the stakes and it's going to feel, it's going to be even better. 
That's what I'm hoping for. We'll see. But I'm giving for now Mutant Mayhem 8 out of 10. And that's the whole franchise. And it was a lot. They've certainly tried time and time again to get this franchise right. I think personally keeping it in animated form is the right idea for that. And Mutant Mayhem I don't think was the absolute saviour this franchise is looking for but it is quite a few steps in the right direction. It's the best film they've had, for sure, in my opinion, and I really need to not eat any pizza for a while after watching all that. God damn. And that's us for this week on Movies Are Good, folks. I'm going to try and take it a little easier next week so I don't have to speedrun quite so many films. Um, we're going to be talking probably about Theatre Camp, which I've got some hopes for, definitely, uh, as well as, I don't know, I don't know, a couple other films, Sound of Freedom, is uh, coming out here at last. It kind of swept America in a very exciting way. And The Blackening. I've got to check that out still. And I'm really excited for that. That looks really funny. Not quite sure yet what we'll be checking out on Movies Are Bad, so leave your suggestions in the comments if you're on YouTube. And if you're listening somewhere else, then find me somewhere and suggest things at me. And, of course, big one, we're going to be ranking the Equalizer movies next time out because... Third one's coming out, and thank goodness I can just rank three films for once. I've been doing like ten the last few weeks, and it's been brutal. But thank you all for tuning in this week. I hope you had a lovely listen while I got right inside those years. Nope. Yep, didn't like saying that. Um, (laughs) But I'll see you all again next time.